Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. Hello. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sydney Writers Festival. If you're just coming in, just take a seat wherever. Uh, welcome to the first day of Sydney Writers Festival and for making it here your first event. My name is Frances Mao, and it is my pleasure to welcome you today to the discussion on China, real China, modern China, Chinese people, and Chinese society. I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal of the Aero Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Before I introduce our brilliant panel today, and we're really lucky to have such a brains trust on stage, um, I just need to make a few short announcements. So firstly, on phones, you know what to do, switch them off, silent, phone mode. Um, please keep any recording and photographs of today's event to a minimum, but feel free to tweet away if you'd like using the hashtag Festival. And lastly, we will be taking questions um, in the last 10 or 15 minutes or so of this event. I'm sure we, you know, I'm hoping everyone has a few. This is a really sprawling, rich topic, so, so we'll get to that soon. Um, and lastly, all of these authors will be signing their books after the event in Bay 23, so opportunities then too. So let's get into introductions. Um, I'll just quickly do me. Uh, so my name is Frances Mal. I'm a uh, world news reporter for the BBC. I'm based in their Asia Bureau at the moment. Um, but until, until I moved to Singapore this year, um, I was covering Australia for the, uh, for the BBC. And um, firstly, to my left, we have Muron Shechuan. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Well-deserved round of applause. Muron is one of China's most famous dissident authors. Um, through his novels, his narrative nonfiction, he's, you've been a really rare independent voice, you know, writing from inside China. You only left China um, last October, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. August. August. Mm, yeah. yeah. So, you know, your first novel, Leave Me Alone, novel mm. of Shindu, um, you published that online in 2002. Yeah. That was a you know, took, took China by storm. Yeah. Um, you know, your books also include Dancing Through Red Dust, The People's Literature Prize winner, The Missing Ingredient, and your latest, Deadly Quiet Streets, you know, store, a collection of first-hand accounts from Wuhan. You know, and as someone who you know, has covered, you know, these past two years of the pandemic, I found your, the stories you're able to get, the people you're able to get in the startling, so many details. It's even informed my reporting of the recent China lockdown in Shanghai. So very, <laughs> so how excellent to have you today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and next we have Linda Javen, very well known <laughs> at writers festivals around the world. <laughs> Prolific, author of 12 books, including seven novels. But your latest book, The Shortest History of China, Name one of the top books on China last year. One of my top books on China. You've got me through the dynasties. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> um, published overseas. It's been translated. Um, but you are, you know, one of Australia's preeminent sinologists. And the great thing, I, I think I loved about the shortest history of China is the vivid storytelling and the writing. Thank you for boiling down 5,000 years of... <laughs> 5,000 years! 
of you know, intensely complicated, sprawling history into something that really helps us understand how we can look at modern China today. You know, history always informs society. So thank you, Linda. And Louisa. Oh, so, many, so many hats. <laughs> um, so your most recent book, of course, is this incredible portrait of Hong Kong. Um, indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Um, your earlier book, People's Republic of Amnesia, um, covered Tiananmen Massacre and how that was reported and not reported throughout history. Um, outside of your literary achievements, you are an award-winning journalist and podcaster. You spent 10 years reporting for China for the BBC and NPR as correspondent. And you're now a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne in audio video journalism. And you're the host of one of my favorite China podcasts, The Little Red Podcast, <laughs> co-host with Graham. Yeah. Um, so round of applause again for our brilliant brains trust today. Okay. So packed room clearly shows the interest in this topic. Um, I'm going to start off with just asking our guests on stage, one question each on respective you know, topics. So I'll start with history. You know, we're at a chat about modern China, real China. The one thing I found really illuminating about your book, Linda, was being able to actually have a compatible understanding of China's history. Various themes, various philosophies and ideas came through that I see reflected in you know, modern news reports on China today and how we can understand Chinese society. Um, so, so firstly, <laughs> could you speak to, I guess, the challenge of summarizing you know, millennia of history? <laughs> and, and secondly, what, you know, what now, that, now that you've summarized 5,000 years, what are the main themes that you see? Um, what leads to the, the rise and fall of, of dynasties? And what are the kind of strong ideas that we see persist today in, in the government in China? Thank you, Francis. And I'm so delighted to be here with two of my favorite China authors. I'm really excited. Um, so history is so important in China. And I agonized, where do I start? The Chinese government says they have 5,000 years of history. That dates back to the mythical Yellow Emperor. Um, I tend to say 3,500 years of written history. But in the end, I decided to start with the creation of the universe because I'm not the least bit ambitious. So. <laughs> So there's a, a, a creation myth in China about Pangu, the giant who, who hatches out of an egg of yin and yang. And I take the story all the way up to COVID and Xi Jinping. So in this journey, having to constantly boil down, I was searching for the themes that would, you know, run through them. And some of the things that I found um, were anxiety about succession. There's so many bloody successions in China. And it, this anxiety, which, which was, went through every dynasty, you know, how does an emperor choose which son? Presumably the first son, never the daughter. Um, but then some women rose up and said, I think we'll kill somebody and try to get in. My you know, so the, it's, it's always been very, very bloody. Mao was asked, how, how are you going to manage succession? And he answered, democracy. 
<laughs> which, you know, we know how that worked out. Um, and we see now Xi Jinping uh, has, you know, made it possible for him to get a third term and maybe a fourth term and all that sort of thing. So, and, and that's caused a lot of anxiety within the party and a lot of dissent. So, one theme is succession. How do you manage it? Another theme is corruption. There's a terrible fear that corruption will bring down a dynasty or a regime. And this goes through every single bit of Chinese history. This sense that when you start a, a, a dynasty, you start a new regime, you have to do it in a way that prevents corruption. <clears throat> Xi Jinping, the first thing he did when he got in was launch a big anti-corruption campaign. It speaks to a millennia-long anxiety because the way history is written is that every dynasty ends when it becomes so corrupt that it falls and the people rise up and rebel. So this is really important. There's other themes as well about disunity and unity, but I just want to make two other quick points. One is that history itself is a theme in Chinese history. So the Chinese, the idea that China is this place with 5,000 years of history, or 3,500, however you want to count it, that China is this unbroken, long civilization that's unique and special and exceptional in the world for its history. Its history is terribly important. Everything that people say, uh, every, every kind of speech, um, <clears throat> many, many works of literature, have historical illusions embedded in them. History is in the Chinese consciousness in a way that's not necessarily in, say, the Australian consciousness. The final point is that about history in China is that it's written, it's been written in a particular way ever since the first historian, the grand historian Sima Qian of the Han Dynasty, roughly contemporaneous with the Roman Empire. <clears throat> Sima Qian wrote history as a set of moral exemplars. So here's a person who did well, here's a person who did badly, learn from it. And that's, I'm simplifying obviously, but that's the way history has been written to the present day. Um, and very interestingly, Sima Qian is still taught, and the way you pick your moral exemplars, what you choose to teach, is super important. So, in the Mao era, from 1961, every Chinese school kid would read in their literature class a bit of Sima Qian that talked about it was an ex a moral exemplar for the good, a rebel, the rebel who overthrew the Qin dynasty. That stopped a couple of years ago. Under Xi Jinping, they got rid of that because they don't want to teach young people to rebel. They replaced that with an anecdote from Sima Qian, which is about a Han dynasty general who was famous for obeying orders. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll stop now. <laughs> I think we see that control of the narrative that is told about China throughout its history and, like you say, the various political movements that come forward or how emperors want to shape their period and shape what comes next. Louisa, your, your book on Hong Kong and also on, on Tiananmen, you, I found the thing I found striking about it was how deeply you go into establishing you know, what are the facts of, of history. <laughs> Obviously, history is never purely objective and, and fact-based, um, should be, but you know, we get variations. Um, and, and your portrait of Hong Kong is particularly, you know, it's really grounded in both your personal history, but also the wider research you've done. Um, you mentioned in your book how, you know, so much Hong Kong's history is locals don't know for, for, for decades, right? especially under British rule. And of course, history and, and knowing these stories are so tied to identity. 
how does Hong Kong's identity um, as a place that is seen, perceived as separate to China, mainland China, how, how does that differ from, from the mainland? You've, you've worked in both regions. Oh, thank you. It's um, such an Im important and actually quite, quite a tricky question to answer. I mean, I think one of the things that was at the back of my mind when I started writing um, was this idea of history and what is the history of Hong Kong that is known and, you know, what other kinds of histories of Hong Kong exist. And I went to see a historian uh, who's a friend of my mother's, and my mother has done a lot of work on cultural heritage in Hong Kong. Um, and I asked him, so he's a man called Tim Ko, and I asked him, what do you think of the histories of Hong Kong that have been written? And he said, there are no Chinese names, no Chinese faces in Hong Kong's history books. And that really stayed with me, because my mother had given me her entire library. She carried it over to Australia in her suitcase, books and books. And I read all the colonial books, and it was just a laundry list of British governors and their achievements. And I, you know, I really realized that it was true. There were no Chinese names, no Chinese faces. And so I really wanted to go about trying to recenter re local voices and tell a different history of, of Hong Kong, one based from inside rather than from outside. And, you know, then I started coming across, you know, the fact that a lot of the archival records are missing, they're gone. The British, when they left in 1997, they removed the, some of the most sensitive archives. And, you know, I remember interviewing this young sort of amateur historian who piece together Hong Kong's history. And he said, you know, but without records, we can't have an identity. So there's this real sense of Hong Kong's identity having been suppressed, that the British, while they did bring things to Hong Kong, like a civil service, education, commerce, all these things, one thing, they didn't bring democracy, of course, they did was to really um, suppress any sort of formation of identity. So they never taught Hong Kongers their own history. And that was a very conscious decision, you know, that if Hong Kongers should understand how Hong Kong had become British, if they could understand that Hong Kong had been handed over in the Opium War and that this had been a war fought over Britain's right to trade illegal drugs to China, then they might feel differently about British... Um, British rule. So those were the things that I was sort of thinking about. And then I started to sort of dig, as you said, back and back and back. And, you know, like you, Linda, I didn't think I was going to go back so far. And it just, you know, suddenly, you know, I was with an archaeologist talking yeah. about pre-Neolithic <laughs> things. And go, well, you know. but, but it was really fascinating to find out all all this archaeological evidence, because, you know, Britain had always said Hong Kong was a barren rock. There was nothing there before the British came. And that was something that so many people believed. It was the accepted narrative, but, you know, it wasn't true. And there's so much archaeological evidence out there that shows Hong Kong's own separate status. But, you know, that evidence in itself is, is quite, um, it's quite difficult to interpret. You know, you can look at it 
in different ways. It's often quite politically sensitive. You know, the idea for a very long period of time, Hong Kong was a massive salt field, which was exploited for, um, you know, the government, the imperial government, as a monopoly. Um, and then, you know, way back in the 11th, 12th centuries, there were the rebellions against that imperial control. So this sort of history of rebellion was actually much longer than, you know, we believed. I think, you know, in 2014, when the umbrella movement happened, and in 2019, you know, there was this sense, oh, this came out of nowhere. But if you really start digging down into Hong Kong's history, that's not true. There's a very, very long history of uh, defiance and rebellion against central control. And I was just kind of interested in rooting out those stories and, yeah. and trying to tell them. Yeah, and just quickly, I'll come to you, Moran, but, you know, this year in particular is a really interesting new chapter of Hong Kong's history too. You know, we've just seen the recent election appointment of um, the new uh, chief executive, John Lee, and that talk about the oppression of Hong Kong identity or concealment in the last two years alone, you know, since the 2020 national security law was brought in about a month after <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic kicked off, um, we've really seen an erasure and a suppression of voices. We've seen an exodus of Hong Kong locals. You know, your book touches on already how much of a struggle it was for Hong Kongers to define an identity or even see themselves you know, as Hong Kongers. Um, and we're now, you know, from some perspectives, we're seeing a change to that, aren't we? W what are your thoughts on this? I mean, we really are. The national security legislation that was brought in in 2020 um, is supposed to outlaw secession, subversion, collusion with foreign powers and terrorism. Um, but it's so widely defined and broadly used that you can get arrested for having a sticker with a slogan on it. I mean, even the words on the front cover of my book are deemed sometimes subversive, uh, but nobody knows when. And, you know, it, it's been heartbreaking to see the number of arrests that have been happening. Most recently, last week, a 90-year-old cardinal, Cardinal Joseph Zen, who's one of the people that I interview in my book um, was arrested, along with uh, Margaret Ng, who's an expert in constitutional law. And, you know, even discussion of identity, uh, of a separate, distinct Hong Kong identity, I think risks uh, being seen nowadays as secession. So the for these kind of discussions, space for this kind of thinking is, is narrowing so dramatically, and the costs are so high for Hong Kongers that I think it, it is, you know, becoming really, really hard to, to discuss Hong Kong and Hong Kong identity in Hong Kong. And I do remember when I interviewed a certain person who was selling these protest slogans with and badges with the word Hong Konger on them. And he said to me, you know, I think these are going to be banned one day. And I didn't believe him at the time. Now I do. Can, can I just add a really quick line that in Taiwan, um, during martial law, 
<clears throat> the whole question of Taiwan identity was ex could get a discussion of that in a certain way, could land you in jail, in prison. And so identity is actually a really sensitive topic. And in China today, local identities can be a sensitive topic. I just wanted to broaden that out because mm. it's such an interesting point. It's not just Hong Kong. Absolutely. I think one of the things fascinating I found from your book, Linda, too, was how these frictious areas and these contested territories have been contested going all the way back. You know, it's not, it's not new Xinjiang, Tibet. It's, these are not new areas of contest, essentially. But I just want to go to the mainland now. You know, Hong Kong used to be this area where people could talk about what was happening in China. You know, people fled, you know, revolutions, you know, policies to go to Hong Kong and, and like, they're talking about the suppression of, of political chat there now. The amazing thing about your book, Mulong, was, and it's so rare, to, to get these first-hand voices, these stories of ordinary Chinese people that you found um, who lived through the first lockdown, the first coronavirus <laughs> lockdown in, in Wuhan, um, you know, in a society which was already, could, could control society to that extent. Um, but obviously, Chinese authorities were also caught by surprise and unprepared for a pandemic lockdown. How did you... Firstly, what, what prompted you to go from Beijing to Wuhan in April last year? Uh, in 2020, in wasn't it? In 2020. Uh, I lived in Beijing uh, in 2020, and, and I saw the lockdown come, and... Uh, I didn't have an idea that I should visit uh, Wuhan at that time. I spent two months in Beijing, and uh, I watched the, the empty city, and it's, it's scary, you know. I didn't, i never seen Beijing like this. It's uh, like an empty city. And then I thought, then I thought what it would like being Wuhan. And at that time, um, a friend of mine, Clive Hamilton, and Rami, that uh, he suggested that I should go to Wuhan to find the silenced people, uh, to find the buried truth. Uh, it's a great idea. Then I bought these tickets and uh, secretly went to Wuhan. And uh, then I found the people, they all have stories. Miserable stories, but stories, um, stories of blood and tears. And then I interviewed them and uh, to write this book. <laughs> My English is not that good, so uh, I can only talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Not an issue. Not yeah. an issue at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, yeah. The remarkable thing about your stories mm. is these are stories of just ordinary people. Many of them have full trust in, in the state, for loyalty, um, and you know, none of them are flashy or really actually middle class or upper middle class. Few, you know, many of them are just um, you know, pensioners, um, cleaners. Um, your, the last story in your book about the story of a, um, a mother taking care of her daughter who's suffering from cancer and is the last stage of chemotherapy. Um, she's only two treatments away from finishing the course when she catches coronavirus. Um, absolutely heartbreaking. 
um, the mother takes her daughter to hospital. Um, of course, by then, the hospitals are absolutely chaotic. Uh, the mother catches coronavirus herself. Her daughter's wheeled into ICU. Uh, the mother suffers from coronavirus the next few weeks, trying to recover. She tells herself that she needs to get better so she can look after her daughter. By the time she comes out of, she's recovered a month later, um, her daughter's passed away. Yeah. How did you find stories? How did you find stories like that? And how did you, were people happy to chat to you? Were people holding this in? Were people, you know, I, re I remember being in covering um, various Chinese lockdowns. You know, the only way we really see voices from ordinary Chinese people, because it's such a risk, right, for, for ordinary Chinese people to speak to media, is online. You know, we see so much thriving Chinese discussion online. Um, but obviously, there's the Great Firewall, there's censorship, there's many influencing factors. You being on the ground, yeah. having access is in invaluable. But how did you find these people? And were they ha very happy to talk to you? So the ordinary people uh, would love to talk to the journalists and to the writers because they really wanted their stories to be heard. And uh, I joined some WeChat groups um, with local, person, local people. And they told me uh, their stories. Although there are many journalists, uh, there were many journalists, about 300 of them in Wuhan. And some stories, they couldn't, they dare not to write. And they will introduce the person to me and something like that. I have this story, a mother, uh, lost his daughter, uh, her daughter, uh, would you like to write it? And then he, the journalist well, brought Yangmin to me, uh, mm -hmm. uh, like that. Uh, mm. uh, what difficulties did you find, to be into journalism practice, it's fascinating, I'm sure the audience would like to know, what difficulties did you find doing reporting like that? You know, in Australia, we're, you know, as journalists, we're very free to go and chat to people in the street. There's no fear between the questioner and the questionee. What difficulties did you find? And Louisa, too, in your reporting in journalism, what difficulties do you find? But start with wrong. I tried my best to find a, to find a doctor uh, that, who wanted to tell uh, his story. But uh, I failed again and again. There, there were no doctors or nurses uh, want to tell their stories because they are all scared. And finally, you know, I find one. I found one, and uh, you can uh, see this doctor uh, at the first chapter. And uh, I contacted with many doctors and nurses. I asked them to tell this, tell them st their stories to me, but uh, they just stand not because there are, you know, rules of, um, <laughs> so uh, there are field. This is the, 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 the most difficult part. And also the, the officials, even the, the lowest level officials, um, they couldn't tell their stories. Mm, mm. Mm. I know that in the case that I mentioned, the, the story of the, the mother and the daughter, the mother at first doesn't want to speak to media either. She still has faith in the system that she thinks she'll do it through proper processes. 
So for, you know, for months, she's raising complaints. She's going through one avenue, then another, finally realizing that it's futile, it's Kafkaesque, she's going around in circles, and she's willing to go public, you know, and willing to talk, willing to, talk to media. The suffering and grief and agony that she went to, which was experienced by so many people in that city, why do... Why don't, why don't people feel strong enough? Why, why doesn't anger supplant fear? Or has the state been so effective in, in saying that it's futile, that it's pointless, that your voices will never be heard? Well, maybe, maybe we'll start with, with you, Louisa, in terms of how you, how you um, when you cover China and Hong Kong and the variations of you trying to find stories, or, or even, you know, being on top of um, Taoism in, in, <laughs> in Hong Kong helping paint those protest banners? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really difficult to find these voices in China, and I think that's what's so extraordinary about your book, Murong, is that when you start talking to these people, you kind of enter this world that you didn't really know existed. You kind of heard of it, but once you're sort of in it, you realize just how all-encompassing that is. Um, so a lot of the people that I interviewed for my first book, um, which was about Tiananmen, were people who were being watched by the state security services and... Um, you know, it made, for me, it made reporting really very hard. I would go, um, I would ring people up and, I, you know, I was a journalist. I had every right to be there to go and talk to them. But I would never talk about what I was doing on the telephone. I would never email. Sort of, I wrote that book in secrecy. I never emailed anyone about it while I was in China. I never mentioned it on the phone. I never um, talked about the book that I was writing in my office or e even in my house. I didn't tell my children when I was writing it, and I wrote it on a computer that I didn't go online, that I kept in a safe in my bedroom, <laughs> locked, for, because I became increasingly paranoid. And the reason that I was increasingly paranoid were the kind of interactions that I had with my interviewees, you know. Um, there was, you know, one woman who, when I went to visit her, you know, the first thing that she said to me was, oh, you know, the police, you know, they knew you were coming. They rang me up to tell me not to see you. Um, and there's that... And, you know, when I was writing my first book, I realized that level of surveillance had actually become so internalized that even I felt it. When I was sometimes asking people... Uh, you know, I went to a university campus, and when I was asking people about students about what they knew about the crackdown, I could feel it in my own body that I felt, you know, I was sweating, I was like, my hands were clammy, I was really, really anxious, and it had almost become like a physical, visceral response. So that's why I thought your, you know, finding those people and speaking to them is incredibly hard, because you know, the costs are very high. In Hong Kong, this time, to begin with, it was fine, because I've been writing this book for many, many years. So, you know, I started in 2014, and when I was doing that, the, that reporting, it was just like reporting in Australia or in any other country. But it just became progressively worse and worse, so you could see the kind of arrival of the security state and how it changed people's thinking. 
And there was a certain point that I was doing an interview over um, Zoom with a theater director who was actually based in Germany. And he said, oh, if it's okay, um, I'd rather not talk about politics. It was a Hong Konger, and that was the first time that I was like, oh my God, it's really here. You know, I'm in Australia, he's in Germany. I understand what he's saying, and I know why he's doing this, because the things that we want to talk about have become, overnight, they've become that dangerous. And, you know, it was a really stunning moment for me. It, it's interesting. I was a journalist in China in the 80s, and um, <clears throat> it was a very interesting time because... Uh, people were still kind of in shell shock from the Cultural Revolution, and that gave them different reactions to talking to a journalist, and one was total fear, so some people would turn away. But a lot of people, especially younger people, they were so pent up and they wanted to express themselves, so they, would, they were so brave, and they also felt a little bit safe, because they felt the, the government had said, the party had said, the cultural revolution will never happen again. And so they wanted to tell their stories, they wanted to mix with us, they wanted to be friends, you know, we were much more than just subject and, you know, interviewer. Um, very, very meshed, at least I became very meshed into, um, you know, the uh, uh, social groups and so on. And then it just really began to change. And now, it's just extraordinary. I mean, whether you're in Hong Kong, the only place where people are really happy and open to talk is Taiwan these days. But what, one thing about writing history was I wanted to find those voices that, don't, that are not just the official voices, but finding them in history presents all sorts of challenges because um, those people are not generally recorded in the official histories. So some historians have delved into court records, and I... I looked at some of the, like uh, Jonathan Spence is one of the most brilliant, died recently, um, sinologists in the world, and he has looked at the, the, the um, what is it, Miss, um, Woman Wong, his, his book about Woman Wong is just brilliant because it talks about a court case and what it reveals about ordinary people's lives. So you can go sideways, but one of the ways that I found most fascinating was to look at poetry and culture and stories. Mm, that's one of my um, favourite parts of your, your book, the number of figures, not just politicians, right, but artists, um, philosophers, cultural thinkers, pop stars, you know, who, who pop up. Because, you know, we all remember our favourite songs and movies rather than a news event or a certain government policy, right? And, and that's how people live their lives, through art yeah. and, and culture. I mean, it, the Tang Dynasty poet Li Bai, who may, maybe you've heard of Li Bo, Li Bai, um, he was such a pop star. <laughs> he was <laughs> such a rock star that people, he would go places and people would have verses of his poetry <laughs> tattooed on them, you know? And he would go, and pe women, in, it, the women uh, singers in wine shops would be singing his poetry. You know, this is amazing. So there was something about poetry that spoke, it was a very, uh, it, it spoke to people's desires and their lives and their thinking. And I tried as best as I could to bring women into the story as well, to show there are so many women's stories that don't get told in the short general histories, but they're so fascinating. And they, and they helped paint a picture of the whole of society, because I think as important as knowing, you know, that the 
Song Dynasty followed the Tang, it's, it's, it's so important also to know that there were all these eccentrics. There were poets, there were strong women, there was this, you know, and, and China has all, and one thing I love about both of your books, but one thing I love about Murong's book is that, um, we were talking about this just earlier, is that it shows the absolute diversity and heterogeneity of the Chinese society and people, which is a thing that, you know, when people say, what do Chinese people think about this? I mean, how can you not do an eye roll? But the Communist Party is constantly going, the Chinese people think this, and we represent the Chinese people, and they all think this, and they all believe this. <laughs> and it's, it's so crazy. And you look at Murong's book, and it's so beautiful because each person has a very different understanding and experience of the world, and yet they're all experiencing one common thing, which is lockdown. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> and, and Ron, the other thing I love about your book is your sense of humour and your wry characterizations of these characters who aren't all the most honourable of, char of characters. They're not all suffering, you know. Um, for example, the story of the, um, the black market motorcycle driver. Yeah, uh, or the... Um, yeah, yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Um, can you just briefly sum summarise his story and, and, how, and what was your inter you know, interactions with him like? Oh, and, uh, I met him uh, on the streets. And he Did he offer you a ride? Yeah. <laughs> I can take you to the nearest like hospital train Hey, 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 comrades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need a ride? Like that. I thought, oh, okay, I want to find the ride to this one. And then and he rides and we talked and then I know his story. Oh, it's amazing. And I invited him to my hotel room to have dinner. <laughs> and then I asked, well, I said, I want to interview you. Uh, do you agree uh, that I write, will write your story? He said, yes, <laughs> yes, but uh, you cannot write my name because you know what I'm doing is the illegal business. <laughs> so, and then I told uh, uh, his story. And, you know, Clive Hamilton, uh, this chapter is Clive Hamilton, my editor's favorite. Yeah, well, no, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's one of my favorites too. So he's just in chapter two or three of your book. Yeah. And I think it's nice to have him early on, um, you know, after a very sad story all about pensioners um, and people really suffering. Because you know, he is a really ribald, hard-bitten, scrappy character. Made a bunch of money during some, you know, dot com Boom, was it all gambling? Lost yeah, it all, gambling, yeah. hard drinking. Yeah. Um, and you know, the only way he can make money in China now is um, you know, uh, ferrying you know, people from the train station. He becomes an essential worker during the coronavirus lockdown. He helps people escape the city. He helps, you know, people can't leave their homes. You know, he helps desperate. Um, you know, kids go to their parents at hospital, all that sort of thing. He becomes a hero yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the service that he's doing. And, um, but what I liked about it was, you know, he reminded me of a lot of, you know, people that I know in my own Chinese family. You know, like, I think often, especially in the West, the narrative that we have of China and Chinese people is flattened into a homogenous mass that we don't know much about. It's amorphous because, like Linda, you pointed out, you know, what we know about China is 
these days so funneled through the lens of the CCP and what the CCP wants you to know about China, right? What do we ever hear about the Chinese people in the variety? And, you know, what are their interests? What are the fashion trends? What are, you know, what are the cooking trends? And, and, and what is their democracy? You know, what is their society like? So I really loved seeing that diversity of characters in, in, your, in your books. But also, the other thing that impressed me too, very street savvy, this guy. <laughs> um, and he reminded me that a lot of Chinese people do get around the state. You know, Chinese people don't, aren't just accepting and, and docile and submissive to the rules. Many of them do get around it. Um, both, both in, you know, both in Lee, the striver, finding a back road out of Wuhan. I didn't even, I didn't even know that that was happening during the lockdown. And Linda, you two would have so many stories of. Well, there's like a really that. interesting one that relates to Wuhan. Uh, one of the people who appears, uh, I mean, you haven't talked to her, but she comes up as a, a subject in your book, is um, I, Ifen, is that her name? I'm trying to remember, the, the doctor. Um, uh, yeah. What's her name, Ifen? Lin Qingchun. Uh. No, the other one, um, the woman the who was interviewed, and then her interview was suppressed. She worked in the uh, same hospital. Yeah, yeah, and so what happened was uh, she uh, basically said, if I'd, if I'd only spoken up sooner, I really regret this. And she gave this interview, and then the interview was suppressed. But the Chinese people um, all over Weibo figured out ways to pass on what she had said. So they translated it into Klingon. <laughs> they translated it into emojis. Yeah. They translated it in a way, in my favorite one, and I, I have a photograph of it in the book, is um, they translated it into the ancient oracle bone characters <laughs> that no one can read except you. But this is the great thing. Like, there's, they're not, there's no sheep, you know? They're, I mean, there's probably one or two sheep, but <laughs> there's always, there always are sheep. But, you know, lots of people are like, okay, you have told me I can't do this I'm going to figure out a way to do this, and I'm going to beat that system and get the truth out there, get what's important out there. And Chinese voices are there, struggling to be heard in, in so many different ways. And some of them are just heard. I mean, I listen to Chinese podcasts that constantly make me go, really, did that one pass the censors? You know? Um, so it's just about us listening. We have to learn how to listen to find them. Yeah, I mean, and on that, we were chatting about this before, you know, uh, getting on stage today, but everyone here, you know, has come to learn more about China. So how, how do we find um, ch real Chinese voices? What are the kind of best platforms that we can go to to actually see that, you know? Um, I look at Weibo every day for news, but I, I, can't, I have to translate it using Google Translate, right? It's not the best form. Um, speaking about online being one way, social media being one way, where Chinese people can actually speak, um, how do you guys um, find real stories and how do you stay in touch with real modern China? Besides uh, your friends and, and people in the country. <laughs> well, I mean, I have a lot of friends from many, many years. Some of my oldest friends, I mean, have 
almost 40 years, actually, uh, are from China. So we still communicate. We still sort of... I also work with a number of Chinese film companies, and young people, um, we're on WeChat all the time, and sometimes we, you know, get off subject, and that's very interesting. But I also subscribe to something called SubChina, which is a fantastic digest that connects you to all kinds of conversations that are going on in the Chinese world, in translation and in Chinese. I listen to Chinese podcasts, um, and I look at things like what's on Weibo, which is in English, um, and it gives you kind of the trending topics. Um, look at, uh, what's it called, Sixth, is it Sixth Tone? Sixth Tone, which is an English language magazine that really gets into some of the cultural issues that are going on. Um, just kind of reading wildly, listening to uh, Louise's podcast and, and, and others. Uh, yeah, there's lots of ways. You just have to, you just have to be interested and find your way through them. Can I, can I just, I, I co-edit the China Story Yearbook for the Center on China and the World at the ANU. It's a great It's anthology. free to download. The ANU Press, China Story Yearbook, and it, what it is is academics, and they can be Chinese, they can be Australian, they can be anything we, we've had. Often we've had an Africa, a Cameroonian who uh, had specialized in both Antarctica and uh, African-Chinese relations. Um, Throughout the years, we've produced a number of these yearbooks with different voices by academics, but my job as an editor is make sure that people like you will enjoy reading them. <laughs> so if you want to go to the ANU Press website, free to download. I've often, I've often used the China Story Yearbook as a um, reporting and research tool, actually. It's really in-depth and very rich. And, and Ruan, what about you? And so just before I get to you, we will be opening the floor to questions now. So. Um, raise your hand. I believe um, people may bring bring a microphone across, but um, get to the first question. But just want to give Miron a chance to to say, you know, your 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 Chinese and your Chinese. How voice, I something. find the Chinese voice and yeah. Chinese stories. Um, I think my answer will be simple because now I lived in China for more than forty-seven years, mm. and uh, I know the Chinese issues and uh, you know sometimes Chinese logic it's very strange <laughs> but uh, I think we all know the, the logic but for the Westerners some of them they will feel weird why Xi Jinping did this why Xi Jinping locked down the, the, the Shanghai a city with uh, 25 million, uh, 25 million uh, people that's that's the logic. That's Westerners hard to believe and hard to understand. But uh, I understand that. Yeah, yeah, we understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so feel free if you do have questions to um, have just queue behind these microphones. Hi, a question to all of you, really, but especially to Murong. Yeah. What do you want to do next? What is the next book you want to write? And what will you be allowed to write? Ah, uh, well, uh, I still want to write uh, the stories of Chinese people, and uh, maybe the title is "The Hardest Life." I will interview the people that uh, suffered a lot under the communist regime, and uh, someone and fled away, and we'll find them, uh, find their voices, and uh, to write this book and tell the world that their stories. Thank you. 
Mm. And, and Moran, I wanted to get your thoughts on Hong Kong too, because I'm really interested in what like mainland Chinese people think about Hong Kong and what's happened. Uh, I lived in Hong Kong for three years, since uh, 2013 to 16. I watched the, the Hong Kong. I watched the, the no, we lost Hong Kong, and uh, and I think Hong Kong will never come back as as it it it, it was. Yeah, it's so sad. But do do many people feel though like? You know, this no, reunion is a full China, reunion with China. In mainland China, I think most of the people hate the young Hong Kong youth. The, they call them wasted youth. Fei <laughs> Qing. Uh, and uh, they said they are traitors. And, mm. uh, you know, like something like that. Mm. But uh, I think it's understandable. And this this kind of propaganda and education, uh, people always think like that. Mm. Mm. Um, I'd like to um, ask you <coughs> all three, but particularly perhaps you, in relation to the question of culture and identity that you raised and Hong Kong identity. Clearly, language is one of the strongest markers of culture and identity. And I remember um, going to a conference and talking to a colleague from um, Guangdong, who was really quite angry about the fact that his son could hardly get any access to media or text in Cantonese. It was all becoming Mandarin, and he was increasingly um, angry at the loss of what he considered his local culture and language. So I wondered if any of you had any reflections on that on the role of language in sustaining or not sustaining local language and culture. Um, can I just speak briefly to that? Because one of the things that's happened, um, when, when the People's Republic of China was formed, they used the Soviet Union as a model for handling ethnic identities and localities, which meant that you could have all kinds of strong language, cultural identity, so long as, you know, in the big political things, you followed the you know, you were you were never apart from China. Now, what Xi Jinping has done is he's discovered that this is a source of a problem. This is a source of, you know, Hong Kong people's identity, Xinjiang people's identity, Uyghur identity, and so on. So he now has rejected the old Soviet-style model of ethnic um, rule, or I, I don't know exactly how, <clears throat> how you put the ethnic governance. Um, he's rejected that, and he's promoting now the Chinese ethnicity, so you're not. Uh, so he's trying to get everybody to identify not as a Han or a Uyghur or whatever, but as a Chinese ethnic, which means whatever you are. And he's been systematically um, under him uh, all language programs. For example, just very brief example in Mongolia, in Inner Mongolia, they used to be able to, as primary students, study. Uh, mathematics and all that stuff in Mongolian when they got to high school, they had one Chinese course that they would have to take. Now they have one Mongolian course and everything is in Chinese. So it's a way of wiping out identity. Language and identity are absolutely crucial. The Taiwan politics, which I won't go into because it's a whole other complicated thing, has also been very much wrapped around the question of what language you speak. If you do want to learn more about the stories of China, do read each of these wonderful author's books. Um, they will be on sale in the bookshop. That is the end of our time, unfortunately. Take the panel.
You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go to swf.org.au for more great content.